Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. We have a very special guest here. He does not take the most brilliant photographs. He does not know every species of warbler, and he is quick to admit it. Today on our podcast, we have with us the inept birder who actually has a real name. I do. I do. It's Carl. Carl Meacham. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Carl. It's so good to have you here. You, you were one of my first entries into the world of birding. Someone said, do you know the inept birder? And I said, I don't. And I clicked on your Twitter profile and just fell into this well of delight. I so tell that. us, tell us about the inept birder. Who are you and what do you do? So I'm by day, I'm a freelance writer. Um, but uh, by all the other parts of the day, I'm a birder. I've never actually had a ton of hobbies, so falling into birding has actually been a little bit strange for me. Um, but I do it a lot. And, um, you know, I was going to ask you, do you have, so you have a window next to you. Can you see out that window? Um, a little bit. I shut the blinds because otherwise it's uh -huh. noisy. It's a very main street. Oh, is it? Let mm. me show you my window. Because sometimes you ask people about their birding practice. Yeah. And my birding practice is kind of informed by these windows. Of course, I go to the park and stuff all the time, but also like I'm a freelance writer, so I sit at home. This is actually kind of my desk mm. and I'm kind of birding all the time, um, which has really improved my life a lot. And uh, I guess when you're talking about inept birding, that's this moniker I made up when I joined Twitter and started birding and Birding did not come like super easily to me. So I thought it would be fun to kind of poke fun at the process, the process of learning, be a little more honest about how hard it can be at times. Um, trust me, everybody, it ends well. Um, it gets easier. Hashtag it gets better. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's kind of what got me started. Uh, and Twitter was, Twitter was a fun way to, uh, I don't know, just to share stories commiserate a little bit. I mean, a lot of times it was kind of a one voice thing. I was, I didn't feel alone because people were friendly, but not a lot of people were like super honest about some of the challenges. And uh, yeah, I didn't mind kind of grabbing that territory for myself. Mm. So if you're not familiar with Carl's work on Twitter, he's the inept birder and folks send in blurry bird photos. This is where the grackle used to be, but there's just an empty field. And right. He, he puts these sweet little comments on these photos of like, you know, it's the most beautiful golden eagle I've ever seen when really it's a mylar balloon floating through the air or, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And kind of you poke fun, but you also kind of draw people in. My husband is not a birder and mm -hmm. I was showing him your Twitter page and he was just cackling and, and yeah. he's not that into birds. So it's kind of this universal unifier of we all try to take the perfect photo or write the perfect piece or sing the perfect song. And we all miss it more often than we make it. And there's a freedom in that. So 
how did how did the idea come to be? You signed up on Twitter and I mean, there's a lot of freedom in it, but like, but why don't more people do it? For some reason, I think maybe things have gotten a little bit better in the last like five or ten years. Like, people have gotten more active on Twitter, and the community has become a little like bit broader. But when I started getting into it, which was like I don't know, 10, 12 years ago or something, maybe more. And I'm underestimating that to feel less dumb. That's probably possible. But uh, the community was still pretty straight laced and pretty like starchy. And mm. it, I won't say it didn't feel welcoming, but it wasn't, uh, everybody felt like an expert. And I was, I got started and I didn't have a history of like feeling dumb at stuff. I mean, I was a good student. I am not especially stupid, um, but I was having a hard time, and it it was uh, it was kind of fun to to uh, go out there and poke fun at myself and maybe make people feel a little bit better about their learning process. If anybody was sharing my experience, and I think turns out quite a few people were. Um, now. Uh, that was like bad birding, but bad bird photography came a little bit later. And it turns out if people have challenges with birding, they really have challenges with bird photography for some pretty obvious reasons. I mean, I would argue it's almost impossible. Um, so I, w I definitely got a lot of uh, camaraderie out of, out of that. People yeah, started eventually sending, tagging me on pictures of bad birds or bad, you know, bad bird photos. Um, and it has become pretty fun. If anybody has one out there you want to share, feel free to tag me on Twitter. And the comments are such a joy too, because people pile on on Twitter in terrible ways, but on these yeah. photos, people pile on in delightful ways, right? Like they, Isn't that they, interesting? Yeah, yeah, they use their creativity and their creative writing. And there are times I am not a photographer and birds are fast and small and far away. And all I have is an iPhone. But there are times that I take a photo and I'm like, well, at least at least the inept birder would appreciate this photo. Right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we just can't help ourselves, can we? Like we keep – oh, what I was going to say was um, I would never like make fun of anybody on Twitter at all. Like it's mm -hmm. not a culture of like – yeah, like you said, of making fun of these pictures or the photographers at all. I mean, the last thing I would ever do would be to like mock someone's bad bird photo. But because there's a pretty accepted consensus that this is hard, we're all making mistakes and we can laugh at these kind of ridiculous like photos. Um, yeah, everybody can kind of just pile on. And it's a weird space where like, yeah, where people are really open to that. I'm not sure if there are other spaces, but bird photography seems, yeah, pretty open. You're meeting a need for people. I'm meeting a need. That's all I ever wanted to do. So uh, <laughs> I never expected it would be this. But um, if this is how, it, how life turned out, I'll take it. You know, <laughs> I'm here. I think there is something to that idea that birding is it's such an arena of gifts. You can't make the birds come, you know, you can call them or feed them or hope for the birds to show up where, where they are, but really in the end, it's all a gift. And it feels like a little bit that this inept birder community has been a little bit of a gift to you. You kind of stumbled into it, but it really is meeting a need and it really is blessing people and it's encouraging people and it's funny and it's lighthearted funny. It's not mean funny. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a trick. Yeah. Maybe so. Thank you for that. 
it's definitely not mean funny. It's it's silly funny and it's warm funny. Yeah, you're right. And I'm kind of happy to be in a space like that. It's definitely therapeutic for me as much as for, you know, for anybody. Oh, that's that's great to hear because sometimes yeah. I wonder about the the person on the other side of the computer screen. Is this, mm-hmm. you know, is this giving back to you as well in the ways that you're giving back to all of oh, us? Oh, more and more. I'm sure I'm getting more out of it than anybody. I mean, when people, I was happy just to post my dumb photo, my bad photos and just laugh at them. But then as other people started to share those and then shared their pictures with me, I mean, yeah, definitely. I'm getting out a lot more of it than I ever put in, um, which is funny and unexpected and uh yeah it feels good my twitter is a very fun space like or you know for me it is um Mm. my feed is a very fun my mentions are very fun um and yeah i encourage everybody to do that it's a bird twitter um is a pretty lively community period Mm -hmm. but um this kind of corner of bird twitter is is really fun too and kind of like you said it's really sweet and nice it is and it it offers each of us this permission, I think, to go out there and be inept, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's, that's how we all begin. And I think of folks yeah. who end up being very, very, very successful photographers and even they had to start somewhere. So there is this permission inherent in what you do. Did they, they seem so good. I mean, the photographers, it feels like bird photography. It's like those people are so good at it. I sometimes wonder if they had a, a year or 10 years where they just didn't, I don't know. Some people are, some people are like, they have skills and traits and talents that are more suited to something like photography. And one factor is obsessiveness. And have you noticed that's kind of a trend among birders? It's got to be a trend among photographers because they're so on their craft. Are you an obsessive person? I think I would answer that question differently than my friends and family would answer Uh that question. Uh I don't think I necessarily consider myself an obsessive person, but I do see how birding feeds into that piece. It's spring migration. I have to get out. This bird Uh is passing through this week. I have to get out. And Mm -hmm. I think part of birding for me is channeling that into a positive and healthy direction. Okay. It gets me outside and it helps me to relax. And, um, but Mm -hmm. I do think, I do think intensive hobbies like this, like photography, like birding might call to a particular personality (laughs) trait. You know, I have a dear friend who's a mountain biker and he's an adrenaline junkie and that Uh does not appeal to me at all. I don't want to go fast. I don't want to get hurt, but I do want to chronicle every species I've ever seen on my life list that I want to do. Right. And pour through books and see what's showing up next month. And maybe I should take a trip or. Yeah. Yeah. But so you, but you've probably have evidence of obsessiveness in your former life, right? Your pre-burning life. A little bit. Right. You've had, you've had hobbies, you've had passions and things. Yeah. How about you? You know, what's interesting, not interesting. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm Mm. not very obsessive. I don't have a long history of hobbies. Um, this is almost the first. And so I don't, the only reason I bring it up is it might be a lesson for people that, you know, you can, you can grow into things, you can develop passions and interests and loves that, you know, let's say you don't have them right now. Um, But also, you know, I worried early on that my not being an obsessive was hurting me as a birder because I just didn't seem to learn as fast as everybody else. And then when I would take a few bird photos, it's definitely the same. Like other people seem to just learn so much faster. And again, like 
I'm good at some other things, but I'm just not very obsessive. Um, but you, I don't know, you can still, but don't be put off by it. You know, I would recommend people like don't be intimidated by or put off by people who seem like just born naturals or they, you know, or the, let's say they pick it up and they, they learn really, really fast for some reason. You know, we all have different personalities and mm. some of us uh, might not pick things up as fast, um, but we can j- j- get just as much out of it or at least get a lot out of it. I don't know. There's space for everyone in birding. I think there is. I think there is. And I think it's easier now. I would guess that it's easier and more open and welcoming now, partly because of social media. Um, There are communities out there that are broader than the old birding communities. I mean, birders used to like call in to a, to a hotline to hear about rarities. You know, the, the community was so small and tight and, you know, nerdy and, it's so much broader now. Yeah, it's filled with a lot of a lot of people who take it more lightly, like I do. But um, but I take it um, respectfully. I take it seriously. I, I really do love it. I try never to like misidentify something, you know, or I try to have all my facts straight um, mm. when I do. I, I do. People might cringe, but I do use eBird. Um, I do it conservatively, but I post on eBird. I'm, I've gotten, yeah, the inept is in my Twitter name, but I've mm-hmm. gotten good enough to kind of be a, a decent kind of reliable birder and um, mm-hmm. surveyor. So, yeah, if anybody wondered about that, sometimes I worry about that. <clears throat> and I know perception. you got into birding a little bit later in life, and I've only I really did. been birding hardcore for about three years, so I got into yeah. it later in life as well, but talk a little bit about that, about what is it like getting into birding? And you said older, yes. but I think you mentioned like late thirties, which for a lot of folks is not old. It's not older. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, we, you and I actually have a lot of overlap that we have so much to talk about. Um, yeah, it was, you know, I was not raised. We weren't a very naturey family and stuff. We would go to national parks, but we were just kind of scenery junkies. We weren't getting in the weeds and, or whatever. Um, and then I just had this sort of academic route into life. I got into publishing. Um, Nothing was very outdoorsy. And for one reason or another, I kind of slid into birding. Um, I I would say probably more mid mid thirties. Yeah. But um, wasn't old, but you know, I think of all the, the, how kids learn things. They learn things so fast. Sometimes I'm envious of these people who've been birding since birth, you know, since, since they were kids, like, like learning a language, they can, uh, pick up things so fast and it took me a while to like not be envious of them or you know hold hold it against them uh but but yeah so and you you picked up you picked this up during covid didn't you mm-hmm. that's Which is a I very mean, common of, tale well a little bit but um but you have really like latched onto it i think that's really neat i mean I, i'm excited for you and uh it's it was been it's been so good for me like um, it really provided a new, a new love for me. I don't know how else to put it. Um, and has really, and I haven't, I haven't stopped at all in those years, 10, 15 years. Um, again, I think I keep underestimating the timeline because I don't want to sound too old or <laughs> dumb or slow in my progress, but, uh, it's been, it's been so good, but yeah, I think I, yeah, I think I told you a story or maybe I sent you a story about, my first birding like 
bird experience. It wasn't a spark bird. It was a spark experience maybe um, where we were out visiting a friend in Tucson and we just needed a day trip. Me, meaning my partner, Elizabeth and I. And so I found on a map someplace about an hour away where Sandhill Cranes, it was in the description of the park. I mean, I don't know why else I would have come across that information. I didn't have bird guides. Um, and Sandhill Cranes congregate there in this weird wet area in the middle of the desert outside of Tucson. Um, and so we, we drive over there and we, uh, it was, and it, that sounded impressive. I think I needed something kind of like, like huge and impressive, like 10,000 Sandhill Cranes to kind of get me to like take notice. Uh, we go out there and true enough, there were like eight, six, eight, 10,000 Sandhill Cranes out there that day. Um, and I, I probably, I might've seen one or something in the past, but I had not seen anything like that. And we start walking around and that was impressive. And then I see all these, these uh, birds in the ponds and just one after another, I didn't know what they were. Um, and then we saw a sign that's mentioned bald, um, not bald eagles, golden eagles. Um, and I thought, wow, those are those look impressive on the sign. They look, you know, enormous and like real megafauna. Uh, and so, you know, all of a sudden it was sparking my interest. And then before you know it, I think I see one, um, and they're they're big and impressive. And then it was just a huge black bird, maybe with a little bit of brown on it. Just looks super big. Um, and again, I live in uh, Ohio, so for what it's worth, large black soaring birds aren't super common unless they're turkey vultures. I didn't know about turkey vultures at the time. Um, anyway, so the sign, again, be cautious of nature park signs because they promise really amazing things and you're not necessarily going to see them. But, um, so, but I swear I see some one, maybe I see another one. Um, and boy, it really, really revved me up and, I'm pretty sure it was within on that trip a day or two later, I'm looking at some sort of bird guide. I must've found one. And I realized there's no way I was seeing a golden eagle at the time. It was almost certainly I was seeing a crow, I'm oh, sorry, a raven, um, which are very large. They're impressive, but I was, yeah, I wasn't seeing that. <laughs> so my spark experience was unsurprisingly like not totally fact filled, but um, it was pretty special. And that trip we saw an owl, in the, what would you, like a, a picnic shelter, like in the rafters of a picnic shelter. I'm sure I'd never seen an owl in the wild before. Let's call that wild, close enough. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so I saw all these black birds floating around in the pond. And I'm, I'm guessing right now, birders, like decent birders are trying to identify the things I'm talking about. Um, and it turns out they were American coots mm -hmm. and there were some Northern shovelers out there. And probably half a dozen more kinds of ducks. And again, not one of those I had ever heard of or seen before. And it was just, it was sort of humbling, kind of embarrassing, definitely humbling. Um, and I think after that, I started thinking, you know, obviously there's a lot around that is not hard to see. It, that was not a difficult location to get to. Maybe I need to try a little harder and mm. see what else is out there. Yeah. How about you? Was it bird feeders, things showing up to your feeders that you maybe didn't couldn't identify right away? Yeah, we had a black Phoebe in our yard, and I didn't know That's what it awesome. was, uh -huh. but it came back every day. It was uh -huh. 
Yeah. And there, yeah. it just opened up my perspective of what else am I not noticing? I've, right. The birds have been singing this whole time and I've never listened. The birds have been oh, in the tree yeah. in the front yard. I never noticed. What else haven't I noticed? And Isn't that interesting? Yeah, this whole world. There's this whole world out there. And, you know, I was 37 years old before any of it uh-huh. occurred to me. And my my mom, we were a fairly indoorsy family as well. But my yeah. mom was always pointing out, look, it's a goldfinch. Look, it's a hummingbird. Yeah. You know, she'd put out feeders. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like never paid a lick of attention. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, she was she was onto something. I should have I should That's have listened earlier. Yeah. I mean, kids, you know, kids are dumb. They don't listen. <laughs> Even if my family had been a little more nature-y, like, I, you know, it might not have taken, I shouldn't blame anybody. Um, but I, yeah, I was so happy to kind of, um, yeah, find this later in life. And I don't know, was this true for you? Like, it sort of met me at the right time. Mm-hmm. Like, I was sort of ready at that time for a new a new interest, a new focus, I guess. So I I think that's, that's common in a lot uh of the folks I've been interviewing. It's grief that gets them into it, or it's an injury or it's a cancer diagnosis or it's a pandemic. Like something shakes them awake a little bit for the first Mm -hmm. time in in decades for some Mm -hmm. folks. Was that similar for you? Was there a, maybe grief over like just life circumstance. It was not specific grief, Mm -hmm. but there's no question. Like I had had a couple like projects and pursuits and passions that were not panning out. Sorry for the alliteration. Um, <laughs> and I was just sort of tired with the, the things I had been pursuing. And because um, like I said, I started off kind of academic. My interests were, um, you know, social sciences and history. And I was interested in politics a lot. And I was trying to do a little bit in politics. And I was trying to, you know, as an activist. And then hmm. they got a little more cultural and I was pursuing some cultural thing like I published a little film journal for a while back in the early days of, you know, before mm-hmm. YouTube. All that. I had some pursuits um, and they just sort of ran their courses, I'll just say. Um, so I was absolutely ready for something new. And if you, if you're open to it, burning can fill up a lot of your attention, mm-hmm. a lot of your heart, a lot of your, you know, scientific interests. Um, shoot, a lot of your like travel travel itinerary like now we almost never go anywhere that doesn't have a burning angle to it Mm. um which is is good and bad we're probably going to miss a lot of like great places but you know we go to a lot of fun burning places so um yeah it's been it's been really really fruitful really therapeutic where have been some of your favorite birding travels? I know you're you're there in Ohio, which is kind of a, a beautiful, beautiful birding spot. You guys see so many migratory birds that we come do. through Ohio. I would never leave. <laughs> yeah, we. It, it's interesting. And it has really made me happy here. You know, I'm not from here. Um, and so I don't really have like any kind of deep, you know, deep childhood-based affection for the place. Um but it really helps me like get it really helped me come to love the place a lot more um yeah ohio is weirdly good for birds the we i'm in central ohio by most objective measures it's it's sort of underwhelming you know it's flat it's it's kind of flat in a lot of ways um but i started looking for birds and it was just one after another there were all these things out there and i live in I've always lived, maybe not downtown, but in the city, in Columbus. And um, 
just neighborhood parks had one after another species that I never, I didn't even know existed. Um, so it took years for me to just fill in just some of the, the normal domestic birds around here. Um, you know, so that was something fun to do, but it was also more than that. It was just like inspiring. Like you said, these, all these doors open and you realize how big the world is. And it, you know, Ohio didn't seem so kind of small and flat anymore. It seemed, like you said, it's, it's literally connected to the tropics. Every spring, these, these birds fly up and next, you know, one week you're, you're seeing robins and the next week you're seeing blackburnian warblers, which are, you know, they have an orange dress too, but they're so different. How is your spring migration? I have to ask. It's good. I miss our ducks. We've sent most of our ducks north. So uh -huh. there's in Southern California, there's a little bit of a, the joy of spring migration, but also the sadness of spring migration because a lot of our birds head up to Canada. They head up to Alaska. Right. They head a, sure. farther north. Yeah. But I, I could never find a lazuli bunting. I was on the hunt for those. I heard yeah. 50 of them, easily 50 oh, yeah. of them could not spot a single one. So I almost send uh. you a, a photo of a shrub. There was the one shrub. in there somewhere, yeah, for the, the inept birder. There's a little I mean, you, bunting. <laughs> you know the bird was there, right? That that's half magical. That's taunting. Something. Taunting that's, right? me. Taunting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we sometimes we have to be happy by with just hearing things. But in um in Ohio, if it's fair I don't know if it's fair or not, but we measure migration often by warblers. Mm -hmm. So we get dozens of them and I think more than you and just raw numbers. So it's hard. We get other things too, like gross beaks and tanagers and stuff but it's hard not to measure your spring migration by by the number of warblers you see and you know we ended up seeing 30 this year 30 different species wow. um which is which is it's good period um it's really good if you're like not an amazing birder you know like i'm but um takes the pressure off it yes it kind of does yeah and there's less pressure i don't know i think maybe there's kind of a I was feeling more pressure maybe a few years ago. Now that I've seen like most of the critters, um, there's a little bit less pressure, but you know what? Every spring, the pressure kind of fires up again, just a little bit, even for me, even with someone with low expectations and a uh, limited skill, um, <laughs> we go out and, uh, we try to, we try to see like a decent number. Um, and this year it was, it was good. Um, I mean, there's maybe some danger in quantifying these things and it, it, it might, take a little bit of the fun out of it but there's you know as birders would be quick to tell you quicker than me but quicker than i but they'll tell you it's kind of fun to make a game out of it it's kind of fun to build a list to see how many you can see then you can maybe compare it to last year and and all the while everyone you see is pretty amazing i mean not one of those 30 birders was like or um warblers was like a dud was like something like i wasn't like super happy to see so um it's, it was really good. And we went up to the lake, to Lake Erie, which has a kind of a famous migrant trap area um, in the southwest corner of Lake Erie where the birds stop during their migration because they're, they're tired from their overnight flight. They don't want to fly over the lake. So they all land in this kind of a long loop shore. And you can go up there in early May and walk around a couple different spots. And it's kind of like being in a zoo it's hmm. the birds are just right. So, I mean, sometimes they're at arm's length. It's really amazing. It's a rare, it's a rare um, experience. It's a rare location. But if you can ever get up there, it's definitely worth a visit or a spot like that. And, you know, just Google migrant traps and birds and maybe ABA or something. You'll find these, these places. And it can, it's a really, 
kind of special experience. And almost anywhere you live in America, you know, when we have listeners in in Canada and Costa Rica and places like uh-huh. that, you can find a, a decent spot within a day's drive you from your house. So you don't yeah, even have to go most. on an yeah. airplane, you know, it can be an hour or two or... Absolutely. And I really encourage that too. Like, in, in fact, that's way more our brand of birding than anything. We don't chase much. We, you know, we don't drive too far. We almost never fly far for things. Um, absolutely. Within an hour's drive or shoot, even 20 minutes drive, often like a really good park nearby will deliver some amazing birds. And I think that's more kind of my philosophy of birding too. It's like just going um, just looking harder. And that means like, you don't have to drive farther, just look a little bit harder and like, you know, linger a little bit longer, stand there a little bit longer or sit on a bench and like, let them, let, let things come to you or turn on your little Merlin app and like, just let it listen for things. And, you know, all these methods will help you discover things that, um, you don't have to drive an hour or more or sure 10 or fly to even, Costa Rica or whatever. That's all fun too. And I want to do all those things someday too, but we've not had a lot of like long distance birding trips. I don't know when we'll do it, but I'm happy right now just to kind of be finding joy in Ohio in kind of a new way. Mm. So, and yeah, you can do that in almost every state. I mean, have you gone back to Wisconsin since you started birding and gotten to like enjoy the, the pleasures of like a whole new region of birding in the stuff where you grew up. I, I'm that way with Oklahoma. Every time I go back, I'm like, crap, I missed all these before. There are some great birds here. It's really fun. Yeah. And I never noticed them and they were right there singing, <laughs> like literally outside my childhood window for the yeah. 18 years I lived there. And yep. you know, Oh, we have American Same. red starts. Oh, there's a warbling, you know, like I, I had no idea. Yep. Same. Same. So as soon as you start birding, like the world opens up to like new, travel possibilities i mean you can go to some i mean you might not make it your destination to go to some kind of boring location but if you happen to be in a boring location or 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 passing through somewhere um on your way some place more fabulous like find go on ebird and find the hot spot and you, you will discover like most likely like you'll discover some amazing birds there that um you maybe not have ever seen before that they're there you know, year round or at least during migration season or something. Um, and it, yeah, it, it really can open your world up a lot. It's been, it's been really good for me. So what is your, there's a hard question. What is your favorite bird, Carl? My today. Bird. Oh, today. I've heard you ask some others. So I did, I did <laughs> put some thought into it. So I've, you know, it's tempting to pick like a duck. I mean, it's hard not to love ducks. They're so cute and they're so charismatic and they're frankly easier to see than a lot of birds. They just sometimes like float there in front of you. That is, that's amazing for birds. That can be so hard. Um, but that doesn't seem fair. Like shorebirds, I love shorebirds. They they have these amazing stories where they migrate thousands of miles and they have these big eyes and they're cute and they have these dainty little legs, like they're precious. But then I thought, no, I, that's unfair. I can't count some shorebird I see like four times a year that's so unfair to the birds around me that like are my neighbors. So I would say a bird that like constantly delivers just amazingness and joy and fun. I'll, I'll say a tree swallow. Um, they're really rather common. Um, and I think they occur across much of the country, but 
tree swallows constantly deliver. Like there might not be a bird that I see more often that I say, like just automatically I'll just say like, I love tree swallows. <laughs> like I, like they're like, look how they fly. Like, look how they turn. Like they're just so impressive. They're, they're such muscular flyers. They'll fly. If you're in like the right field or hill or something, they'll fly like a feet, couple feet away from you. Cause they're just, they just want the bugs and they're, you know, so they're not shy either. Um, they're absolutely beautiful if they like sit, you know, sit still, if they deign to sit still for a minute. Um, they're this iridescent blue purple on their back and a bright white on their bellies and these long black wings. They're like all wing in a way. Um, anyway, a million nice things about them, but they, they deliver the most, I think, joy per minute for my day. And I think that's what I should say. It's my favorite. Yeah. At least this, this week. I think that's a spectacular choice. <laughs> yeah. It's a fun one. They're, uh, they're such fun. Oh, I was going to tell you this morning, um, a bird pooped on me and that has like almost never happened. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blame you, or at least I'll say it was auspicious or something. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was a barn swallow, which is kind of fun. We went on our morning walk or quasi morning walk, um, without binoculars, which is, was sort of kind of bold. You know, I try to do that every now and then we'll go out walking without binoculars make make me a little a little bit more present just every now and then um and yeah these barn swallows kind of swoop around you too they're they're actually a little more pretty than tree swallows but i don't know tree swallows deliver more more frequently but um yeah one of them pooped on me but we had a nice little list we had it was such a good list i came home and i e-birded it i put it on e-bird um because we should e-bird boring days as much as like hot spring migration days because science wants all the numbers. But we had 21 species, which was pretty good for just a city walk along the river. Yeah. Um, but anyway, even if it did come with some poop. I think the barn swallow knew you were going to mention its cousin, the tree swallow, as your tree. favorite. And was there like, you go. you're going to be you that go. way? <laughs> there Fine. <you> go. <laughs> exactly. Vengeance. You're right. How does birding connect to faith for you in your life? What's the interplay you know, there? There is some interplay, to be honest, like, I think faith came first. So it was pretty well grounded before I got into birding. So birding didn't maybe lead me to it, but in a way, birding has just become a new expression of it, hmm. um, a new you know, manifestation or something, like a new way to, that I, a new way that I see and experience um, beauty and joy in the world that I didn't have before. And I didn't necessarily need it before. I was I was decently grounded. I felt already pretty centered spiritually. I thought, um, but then birding, it came, and then it, you know, next thing I know, it's it's a new spiritual practice in a way. Like it's, it you know, effectively, um, you know, I, I'm sure others have said birding feels very meditative. Um, when you look into meditation and the the benefits and the practices, you know as a birder, you think, wait, I'm already doing like three fourths of that when I go birding, right? You're, you're quieting your thoughts. You're, you're noticing things. You're, um, so much of your person like kind of drops away. Like your self drops away in a lot of ways because you're focusing on something else, right? You're, and then the thing you're focusing on is it's beautiful and fun and pure. I mean, 
some people might bicker with that if it's a city park, but <laughs> you know, birds are, birds are, uh, you know, the world of birds is, is a pretty pure world. They are literally wild. And um, so you're focusing on that. That is like so much of meditation. Um, so sometimes I think like if anybody has trouble like meditating, but thinks maybe they want to try it because they've read enough articles, um, maybe try birding. I mean, you know, it helps to have an interest going in. But, um, you know, I know people who say they've had trouble with meditation because it's, you know, they say they can't quiet their thoughts. They're too, they're active thinkers and maybe even their, their thoughts are who they are. They don't want to give that up. Um, but I would encourage those people to, if you have any interest at all, try birding because you end up getting like, I don't know, so many of the benefits of meditation um, just without... I don't know. I just think it's easier. Maybe because there is this thing to focus on, like telling people to focus on their breath, like like breath meditation or conscious breathing. Okay, that's not going to work for everybody. Like I've seen that fail with people. Um, but and I'm not inventing burning meditation. I guess it kind of sounds like what it is. But um, I'll just say that like burning feels a lot like meditation. Mm -hmm. And other people have said the same thing. This is not new ground. But um, that's creates this major overlap with you know my other just sort of history of of meditating or trying to be spiritual and being somewhat centered um there's tons of overlap and you don't have to bird that way you can bird as a scientist you can bird you know however you want but um it is an interesting overlap i think with uh spiritual practice and obviously mm -hmm. like yeah, you see that too that's a lot of your whole point isn't it it is. I think the more we can be outside and connect with the natural world, it, it does good things to our souls, to our connection to one another, to our settledness mm -hmm. within ourselves. I, it's There are weeks where I don't get out birding. And by the end of the week, you know, my husband is like, you need to go birding <laughs> like, because it affects yeah. the family. It affects kind of the, the state of our home and the state of our children. It is that thing that helps me connect to God and also to myself in a way right. that almost nothing else does. Yeah. And I think one key um, practice is to try to make it as everyday as possible. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we have these nice big windows and I'm just always staring out the windows and always, you know, what I see from these windows are usually not that exceptional. You know, we see goldfinches and house finches and star, a lot of starlings and pigeons and whatnot. Um, but we also see green herons fly by. We see a few ducks. We see a some peregrine falcons sometimes sit on the courthouse across the, that green. Um, and trying to make like that sort of appreciation as much as your everyday practice as possible is so healthy, right? I mean, I think, I think like real scientists are proving that it's good for lowering blood pressure and it's good for uh, all these, um, all these health benefits, physical and mental, um, but yeah, if you had bird feeders, a bird bath, a little yard, um, absolutely. Like you could turn it into a, like a really healthy mental practice, I guess, mental health practice. So. And to keep that bar low enough that five minutes of birding is good. Yeah. If that's all you can do or 10 yeah. minutes, because I think often I have this ideal of I, I want to go out for an hour's walk. And if I can't mm -hmm. do that, I'll wait till tomorrow. 
but mm-hmm. there's a benefit from sitting by the window for 10 minutes rather than and waiting exactly. until tomorrow. And, and yeah. that's something I need to be more, a little bit more attuned. I would like to be more attuned to because often I, I want the full hour. And if not that, then nothing, but that, that only harms know, me. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Nobody wins. Um, so yeah, making it as every day as possible. And then, you know what, you can do both. We can enjoy the big trips and we can enjoy the five minutes. Like they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, sometimes I suppose if you have limited time, they might look <laughs> exclusive, but as you know, do we do what we can and we try to have the, the big trips when possible and the local walks as much as possible. I mean, we, Elizabeth and I don't do a ton of big trips anymore, you know, partly, obviously in COVID we locked everything down. Um, but, uh, you know, speaking of COVID, like quarantining was like, pretty easy for us because we had just these built-in sources of like relaxation, pleasure, joy, whatever you want to call it. You weren't desperate to get to the gym. You were okay. Exactly. Heck yeah. Well, (laughs) speaking of gym, that's funny. Like (laughs) burning is probably not super great for exercise, right? Like we stopped, you know, I think once you grow to love burning, your, your hikes become walks and your walks become stands, right? You're, it's like sequential standing. Is um, So, yeah, that's been a funny development. Um, my, my fitness tracker is always like, are you even trying? Exactly. Like, okay, right. all right. I know what that was a 40-minute mile, but I saw yeah. a whole bunch of warblers. So chill I know, out. right? If, yeah, the mental health. We need a mental Fitbit. Um, <laughs> totally. I guess it's Ebert or something. <clears throat> but yeah, what are you going to do? I don't know. We uh, maybe walk to a good park and get your steps in that way. Because once you're there, like if there are a few birds around, you know, one of the beautiful things is like it really grabs your attention and it can be so nice to just stand there for an, for an hour. I mean, if you're with non-birders, they'll quickly recognize like how much you're just standing around and wonder why, what you're doing. But anyway, mental health benefits, I think, are the main benefit area. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Where are you finding hope these days, Carl, as you think about the state of the world and the, the state of the country and the state of conservation in America and all of these different parts and pieces? Where are you finding hope? Well, my hope, luckily, my hope is fairly automatic. My hope comes from, like, probably just from faith and optimism, which, mm-hmm. you know, I was raised with. Luckily, I don't have to really, like, build that out of the you know out of empirical evidence i don't have to build it out of the news or trends or whatever thank god because if you look at the news and trends like there's a lot of bad news around um and i think most of my social and family circle is sort of is steeped in that we're like we're all pretty well trained to like read the news and be depressed and and criticize (laughs) things um so i would recommend like moderating one's news intake a little bit, but no, sources of hope. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of long-term trends. I think one of the few places I can find hope empirically is in a bunch of long-term trends that it's hard not to see hope in them. I mean, and the long-term trends in air quality, in water Mm. quality, in animal rights, Mm. in some social justice movements and some civil rights movements, like we can't deny that there is progress being made in a lot of those areas. I mean, nature-wise, obviously there are some very terrible long-term trends. Um, but then 
look at how sort of easy it is to build a new wetland. Like there are some parks around here that go, they get converted from a car impound lot or a soybean field to a wetland park. And in like 10 years, like you're getting amazing nature in there, great birds and whatnot. There's gotta be some meaning to that, like the resiliency of the planet. Um, I find hope in that. Um, you know, dec long-term decreases in, in violence, um, which has been documented. Like, I don't know. I think there are reasons to be hopeful, but I wouldn't want to like cram any of those down to anyone's throat with my toxic optimism. Um, <laughs> I, but it's a funny term I've heard before. Um, but there, because the news is horrible, but there are tons of long-term trends if you like, you know, look a little deeper and like maybe try to have a bit broader perspective, look at the big picture a little bit more. Um, I started reading probably during COVID, I think, when the, in 2020 was a rough year, not just because of COVID, but because of a bunch of election and civil rights issues. Um, I started reading like anthropology books because I was so tired of the news and I was reading, it turns out reading about timeframes that are thousands of years, like millennia apart, was like so comforting hmm. um just show us that like you know the planet operates on different time frames than your daily news cycle um that was sort of good for me again that's not advice it was just good for me but again i'm kind of centered already um so i don't luckily i'm not too i don't get too hopeless um but i don't know do you think do you think like Birders, birding relies on optimism. Sometimes I wonder, it's such a key part. It helps a lot, right? We can't deny that it helps a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think. But I, I think, don't want it to depend on it because poor yeah. pessimists deserve a, a chance too, right? I think birding helps open us up to optimism. So if we're not naturally optimistic, there's this idea that when you go birding, you have some level of anticipation that can yeah. lead you to optimism. And if you're naturally optimistic, sometimes you go out thinking, oh, and I'm definitely going to see that scarlet tanager today, and you don't. Uh -huh. And then it kind of opens you up to realism. Like I think it can yeah. work both ways in, in the ways that each of those sides need to be a little bit more centered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so much easier for optimists, though. It is. And I <laughs> Most feel like, things are. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it, though? It's so funny. I, and I'm just lucky that I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm naturally that way. I, I was maybe raised in a tradition that kind of encouraged that. Hmm. Well, Carl, where can folks find you? If they want to look for your beautiful words and your, your whimsical take on birding they in can, the world. They can look for my short, clippy words on Twitter. Um, and let's see. Yeah, so at the inept birder is kind of where I'm most, <clears throat> at least for now, it looks like we all might be sticking with Twitter for at least a little while longer. Um, and for the, for the clips and for the, for the photos, for now, yeah, just find me on Twitter. And uh, if you have any bad bird photos, feel free to tag me in them and I will enjoy a laugh if no one else will. But everybody else will too, I promise. It's a wonderful community that you've cultivated and I'm Thanks. I'm I'm grateful you're out there doing the work that you're doing because it's it's an encouragement to so many of us. Thank you Courtney, I appreciate that. Then we end with jazz hands and then I cut the recording. 
The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put a on your soul. Yes, it does.